Second Bible reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. This can be found on page 976 in the Bibles in the chairs. Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Please do take a seat. Let me pray for us. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And we do pray now as we open it up uh, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you want to say to us this morning. And that you would challenge and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that all men are equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they are not judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. I have a dream today. Obviously, those are not my words. Martin Luther King did it so much better. Spoken on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial Building in Washington in 1963, they are rightly famous and made all the more poignant by the fact that he was assassinated five years later for saying words like that. And so it begs the question, how? How do you produce a society, produce people who judge others not on the color of their skin, but the content of their character. 
How do we change human nature? Because <laughs> let's face it, we know that, that human nature is riddled with selfishness, prejudice, and intolerance. We know that about human nature, don't we? Which is why uh, decades later, and despite many advances in uh, human race relations in the um, uh, United States, many black American footballers have been taking the knee before games over the last three seasons uh, during the U.S. national anthem in protest over racial injustice. So I closer to home, in fact, just up the hill, uh, I spoke to an African member uh, of our church this week, and he told me that when they moved into their home, the home they're in, now in, a lad used to pass by every morning, and when he passed by their house, he would spit on the pavement outside. We don't have to look very far, do we, for stories of racial tension or injustice in our day? I was chatting to a friend about um, one of those stories uh, recently. It was the uh, England against uh, Montenegro uh, game a couple of months back. I don't know if you, you saw it, a game of football. Um, the good news is that if you're an England fan, England won 5 1. The bad news is, if you're a member of the human race, there was a lot of racial abuse directed at some of the England players, not least Raheem Sterling and Danny Rose. In the aftermath, of that match, my friend said he spotted two interviews that offered a solution to racial prejudice. The first up was Gareth Southgate, and he said the answer was education. Then the next morning, he saw John Barnes, the ex-England and Liverpool uh, footballer, on BBC Breakfast, and he said the answer was the media changing people's perception. I wonder what you'd say. What's your solution to racial prejudice? I think I've heard solutions like Gareth's and John's uh, many times before, uh, and I certainly don't want to say, oh, let's not do that. Education won't make a difference. Um, the media can't change anything. But we've got to be realists, haven't we? For the Bible makes it clear that human beings are intrinsically selfish and warped creatures. And the, and the, the moral renewal needed to create a new society, the society that Martin Luther King dreamed of, does not lie within the orbit of human competence. We can't do it, can we? We can't. And if you think that sounds a bit strong, then please see how the Apostle Paul puts it even more bluntly at the start of Ephesians chapter 2. Humanity, he says, chapter 2, verse 1, is dead in trespasses and sins. We are powerless to do anything about our selfish nature. But, says Paul, though there's no possibility of escape through our own efforts, there is a possibility of escape through rescue. We were helpless, we were dead. But, verse 4, because of God's rich mercy, because of his grace, his generosity, his kindness, God has raised us up out of our spiritual tombs in Christ and instigated a program of moral and spiritual rehabilitation. And in doing so, God has created a new humanity, 
a humanity God can use to create a new society because they themselves have been recreated by Jesus to be like Jesus. And folks, this is God's antidote to racism, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was what Martin Luther King himself, a Christian minister, pinned his hopes on. And 2,000 years earlier, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 applies it to quite possibly one of the most horrific racial divisions the world has ever known between Jew and Gentile to show that if Christianity is able to break down that divide, well, then there's no social alienation it can't overcome. So we're going to step back in time. We're looking at the problem, the solution, and then we're going to hop back in a time machine, come right back up to the modern day and look at the challenge for us in 2019. So firstly, here's the problem. The dividing wall of hostility. A friend of mine went to a crocodile park when he was on holiday in Australia a few years back um, and plastered all over uh, the chain link fences around with signs like this, trespassers will be eaten. And sharing the same kind of um, uh, childish uh, sense of humor that I have, he thought this was hilarious. But in the first century AD, there were signs around the wall of the temple in Jerusalem that were no laughing matter. Archaeologists have dug them up and found that they, said, that they say, trespassers will not be prosecuted, will not be eaten even. They will be executed. That was the message from Jews to Gentiles, all those from other, other races. Go over this wall and we will kill you. That's what they said. So it was forbidden for a Jew to shake hands with a Gentile. It was forbidden to give him or her good advice. The rabbis even forbade a Jewish midwife from helping a Gentile woman in childbirth. Why? Well, because you're only making another log to, to put on the fire of hell, they said. That was society. And if some Jewish Romeo wanted to marry a Gentile Juliet, what did they do? Did the family start making preparations for the wedding? No, they had a funeral. They pronounced him dead. Do you see? Ephesians 2, verse 14, there was a dividing wall of hostility between these two peoples. Now, if you know your Bible, you might be thinking, yeah, yeah, but hold on, isn't that how God set things up? I mean, didn't, didn't, in the Old Testament, didn't he make the Jewish people to be his, his chosen people? Didn't he privilege them uh, with uh, his presence and promises of blessing? Didn't he even uh, tell them to, to be distinct, to be set apart and not be like the other nations? Well, come on. Let's get back in the time machine. I don't think we've gone back far enough. Let's go right back to almost the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham. And he says this to Abraham as he was then. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God's intention for the nation of Israel was always that they should use the blessings that he gave them to bless others. Folks, if God blesses you in abundance, that is always why he's blessing you. So that you would use those blessings to bless others. And so it was for the Jew, for the Jewish people. And any distinctiveness God called them to was supposed to reflect God's character, to show the other nations God's holy, loving, perfect, healing character so that they too could come and find his blessings with them. But just like us, in their own strength, God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, they failed to bless others. In fact, rather than sharing God's blessings, they snatched after what all the other nations had and, and, and used those things to build up their own separate national identity. And as they did so, they built up this dividing wall of hostility. Even, even in the temple, the place where folks were supposed to come and meet and worship the God of all nations. And so God sent Jesus the solution, secondly, to reconcile us through the cross. Now, if I was to ask you the question, put you on the spot and say, why did Jesus die? I wonder how you'd answer that. Maybe, maybe you might say, well, he did that to pay for our sin, to reconcile us to God. And if you said that, you'd be absolutely correct. Spot on. Well done. But you see, in Ephesians 2, we, we, we see that Jesus also died on the cross to reconcile believers from all kinds of different backgrounds. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. That's believing Jews and Gentiles. They're one in Christ and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace, I might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Folks, by his death on the cross, Jesus has not just broken down the barrier between us and God, but he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. So that all Christians, whatever their background, can be one in Christ. Now I should say that as Christians, we don't deny our cultural differences. I mean, let's face it, I, I hope like you... Like me, you enjoy a good Italian meal uh, or perhaps a, an Indian meal. Indian food is great. Uh, Sri Lankan food is brilliant. Malaysian, um, uh, uh, Persian food is, is fantastic. I'm looking out. I'm, I'm sorry if I've missed um, your cultural delights. Um, uh, I, I've also enjoyed some British food at some of your homes as well. It's okay, I guess. But, uh, but this, this is why we love to travel, isn't it? Not just for the food, but, but because of for, for the richness of, uh, of our different cultural 
um, experiences in, in different parts of the world. There is beauty in diversity. It's amazing, isn't it? And we need to appreciate our cultural differences. But the big point here is that the gospel unity that we find in Christ transcends those differences. Because God's plan for the world is that we should all be one in Christ. And you know what? These aren't just fancy theological theories to, to write in a book for the Apostle Paul. No, no, no. He put his money where his mouth is. Paul is writing these words from prison, you see, over the page in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Because back in Acts chapter 12, he had taken an Ephesian Gentile called Trophimus through the wall in the Jerusalem temple to pray. And he got arrested for that. But he did it because he was determined to demonstrate to the Christian community that that wall had been broken down. It had been destroyed by the cross of Christ. So the Jew Paul and the Gentile Trophimus were now, verse 15, one new man. And could, verse 18, pray together to the Father by one spirit and folks, as, as they did that, as they went together into the temple to pray, after thousands of years of alienation, that sent shockwaves through the ancient uh, world. The, the Jew and the Gentile who had lived opposite one another in Ephesus could now be friends. That their children could now spill out onto the streets and play together. That they could go into one another's houses and break bread and eat together that they could go together into the temple and pray. This was revolutionary. And it is the ultimate antidote to so much prejudice and conflict that we see in the world around us today. So we're told in Galatians 3 that because of the cross of Christ, there will be neither Jew nor Greek. It's the antidote to racism. If we live it out. Neither male nor female is the antidote to sexism. Again, if we live it out. Slave nor free is the antidote to classism, to power struggles, to abuse. And Paul could have thrown in there as well, young and old too, as it's the antidote to ageism also. Because Though there is still, there's still great and beautiful diversity amongst us, the cross of Christ is the great leveler because it says to every single one of us that we have sinned, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that we all, every one of us, need his forgiveness and his power to change. So we may not share a common language or a common color or culture, we may not share very much in common at all. But in Christ, we share a common savior. And that is what matters most. And Paul, he was arrested and went to prison for that truth. He went to prison for it. So it makes me, makes me wonder, it makes me ask, how important is it to us? For Paul, it cost him his freedom. 
What might it cost us? What might it cost you? What might it cost me to live this out? Well, that brings me, thirdly, to the challenge. Modeling unity in diversity in the household of God. Folks, this is so crucial. Here's the punchline, really. Here is the gospel consequence in verse 19. As it says one thing loud and clear, and it's this. You belong. You belong. Do you see? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In God's new society, it doesn't really matter what it says on our birth certificate because Christ invites us all to be members of God's household. That's a very intimate thing, isn't it? To be invited into somebody's house, to to be made part of their family. And that's what the Jewish and Gentile believers were now. It's what we are now if we trust in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. You belong. Wherever you come from, whatever your background, we are family. And if we really think about the church in this way, then it should make a massive difference, shouldn't it, to the way that we treat one another. But sadly and, and, and shockingly, there is, well, to, and to our great shame, so many churches and Christians down through the years have maintained and even bred the alienation of the old humanity instead of demonstrating the unity that the gospel brings. I'm sure like me, you can, you can think of, of things like how clergymen used the Bible to justify slavery before it was abolished. Or how many Christians and churches in Europe closed their eyes and their ears and ultimately and most importantly their mouths to the plight of Jews in Nazi Germany. Or how in the battle of civil rights in the States with Martin Luther King, so many white American pastors opposed him. I must admit that I feel a little bit skeptical when I see on TV politicians trying to apologize for the sins of the past. But I really do think that, that we need to not apologize, we need to do something much stronger than that. We need to repent. Say sorry, yes, but turn from the sins of the past that were, that were cultivated, committed by the church of the past. I mean, that's in the Old Testament what Nehemiah and Daniel did for the sins of God's people, even though they hadn't been personally responsible. And I think we need to do that too. And as we do that, we do it partly so that we won't sleepwalk into staying silent in our day and age over issues that need spoken out about but we also need to do it to give the Lord an opportunity to test our hearts, to see where our blind spots are. Because we all have blind spots, don't we? In the 21st century, being so much better educated, I'm tempted to think that I don't hold any of the prejudices of yesteryear. But I was so struck by this confession by a fellow minister, David Platt, when I read his brilliant book, Counterculture which I recommend strongly, uh, highly to you. Uh, I read him saying this. I am prone to prefer people who are like me in color, culture, heritage, and history. 
If I walk into a room by myself and see two tables, one with a group of people ethnically like me, and the other with a group of people ethnically unlike me, I instinctively, instinctively move towards the people, towards the group that is like me. Folk can find that so striking. What about us? When we come into church, who do we look for? Who do we sit beside? When we head down for tea and coffee, who are we drawn towards? Those are uncomfortable and challenging things to think about, aren't they? But, but I want to push a little bit further and say, who would we rather not be in a group with, a Bible study group with, or any other kind of group? Who might we not want to greet this afternoon at Ice Cream Sunday? Our preferences can be so subtle and sometimes not necessarily sinful. But they keep us in the comfort zone and they build up the walls between us against them. And folks, Christ came to smash those walls down, didn't he? And to make us one in him. And what has really struck me this week as I've thought about this is that if I forget that truth about Christ, then my attitudes and my actions will become careless and snobbish and lazy. That's my natural instinct as a sinful human being. And I'll put up walls, I'll put up barriers to my sisters and my brothers in Christ. And when I do that, I am working directly against the work of Christ. I'm taking his cross, I'm taking it away and all that it stands for and hiding it away. He died to break down those barriers. So let's not, let's not rebuild them. Let's make every effort by his spirit to keep them torn down. And in some instances, that's going to involve some hard work for us. Maybe in, in, in trying to overcome the, the language barrier at points. I have a friend who works with refugees in the States. And she says that she conducts, I think, about... 50% of her conversations using Google Translate on her phone. <laughs> uh, she says it's really hard work and, and actually often hilarious in terms of what comes up. But so, so worth it. So worth it. And I want to say that it's often the little things that we do in church that really count. The heartfelt welcome that goes beyond bothering just to say hello. The remembering to look out for someone the next week. The remembering of a name. The, the welcoming people back to our homes for, for, for coffee, for, for a meal, to, to break bread together. Uh, to, to welcome them into our families and, 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 and have them play with our kids. These things make a massive difference, but, but will we do it? Will we make every effort to be who Christ saved us to be? One new humanity, a family. Uh, will we let him, verse 22, build us up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit? Let me finish with one final thing to say. There's this myth, I think, in our Western society that Christianity is mainly white, middle-class, male western religion but despite all of our missteps as Christians over the last 2,000 years look around the globe and you will see that is not true when we look around we will find 
actually what the Bible tells us about race being borne out more and more across this world. That it is actually the most diverse, inclusive, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement the world has ever known. There has been nothing like it and it continues to grow. And the last book of the Bible tells us that Martin Luther King, King's dream will one day be realized fully and finally as Revelation 7 gives a vision, paints a picture of heaven where a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, worship Jesus. Only Christians will be there. So if you're not a Christian and you want to be part of that, then ask Jesus to take you. He's simply a prayer away. But for those of us who are Christians, this is where we will all be one day. And in that crowd, as we look around, we will see the Israeli Christian standing next to the Arab Christian, the Hutu Christian standing next to the Tutsi Christian, the white South African Christian standing next to the black South African Christian, the North Korean next to the South Korean, the American next to the Iraqi, and so on and so forth. In the new creation, one diverse people will worship God forever. That is God's great plan for humanity. That's where it's all heading. And it's what Jesus died for. And it's what we are to get a taste for now as we live out, as we model this unity in diversity that is the household, the family of God. Let's take a moment to pray that through for us as individuals, for us as a church. Let's uh, have a moment of quiet to do that ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Amen.